Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 102 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to give you a different perspective on the prodigal son. Let's dive in. Well, if you're like most Christians, you're well acquainted with the story of the prodigal son recorded in Luke chapter 15. And it's interesting that when I was in Israel a few weeks ago, we were talking about the story of the prodigal son and just a new depth and insight was just, man, it just exploded in my mind when we were talking about the culture of the Jews of that day. And so I kind of want to preface of, of, of all this by talking about the context of which this story sits in. Now, I think it's important that the beginning of chapter 15, Luke records this by saying, now all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him, speaking about Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then he goes into the story of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin. Now, you know those stories well. Here's this man who had lost a sheep. So even though he had a hundred sheep, he loses one. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't just say, well, it's only 1% and leaves it alone. No, he, he diligently goes and looks and searches for the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he re- returns home and he has a celebration. He brings his friends and his neighbors and says, hey, rejoice with me for I found my lost sheep. And Jesus gives a conclusion in verse seven and says, likewise, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous men who need no repentance. And then he moves into the story of the lost coin where here's this woman and she has 10 coins and she loses one. And rather than just saying, well, it's only one coin. No, she diligently looks all through her house until she finds the coin. And when she finds it, she brings all of her friends and neighbors together and rejoices in finding the lost coin. Again, Jesus gives the conclusion in verse 10 and says, likewise, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you got to see the context here. Uh, The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of spending time with these sinners and these lost people. 
And Jesus says, do not recognize that God has a heart for the lost. And so he gives these parables of the, of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Now, as he moves into the third parable, it's interesting that obviously this is a very elongated parable, at least compared to the other two. But Jesus is emphasizing the fact that, hey, God rejoices over the lost. When the lost returns, hey, God rejoices. And there's an incredible celebration that happens in the heavenlies because a sinner repents. Now, again, this is going back to the context where Jesus is spending time with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees are accusing Jesus. So in one sense, it's interesting that in the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, that when the son returns home to the father and the father runs and embraces a son, Jesus is basically saying, I'm actually who I'm supposed to be hanging out with, that this is who God rejoices in when these people, these tax collectors and sinners return and they repent and hey, the world rejoices, the, the heavenlies rejoice over one sinner who repents. So in one aspect, Jesus is kind of defending, if you will, his position of spending time with the tax collectors and sinners to the Pharisees. But I think in the story of the prodigal son, there's something even deeper going on. Now, I've heard, and probably like you, I've heard the prodigal son story countless times. I've heard many sermons on it. But while I was in Israel, just a greater depth of insight came in light of this story. So before I get into that, I, I want to just kind of walk through the story afresh just so it's on all of our minds. Now, the story begins in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Luke. And Jesus says that a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. So he divided his state between them. Now, it's important to recognize that in that culture, the firstborn son received half of the inheritance of a family. And the reason that would take place is because as the older son, he was to take care of the family as a whole. So here's a father. The father's position in the community, or specifically with a family, is that he is to care for the family. So all of the extended family and all that kind of stuff, he was responsible to take care of. So when the father died, he would give half of what he had to the oldest son because the oldest son was now in the position of caring for the entire family. Therefore, he needed the resource to do so. Now, many scholars have said that it's not uncommon for a father to divide his inheritance prior to his death. But what's interesting about this particular story is the father's not the one initiating the division of the property. It's the youngest son. Now, you got to realize that the culture of which this is taking place in is a honor and shame culture. As such, the fact that the youngest son is even speaking in the stories, many scholars even say that is such a, in a Jewish mindset, that would be such a slap in the face to recognize that it's not the father who is speaking, which would be the normal case in that culture. But here's the youngest son standing up and not just saying, hey, give me what belongs to me. But in this culture, you recognize that the fact that the youngest son is saying, father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. What he's actually saying to the father is, father, I wish you were dead. So, hey, would you just give me what belongs to me? So I wish you weren't even in my life and I just want to go and I want to do my own thing. So give me my inheritance. This is more than just, well, give me some money. This is, hey, I don't even want you in my life. Now, countless people have stated that obviously the father didn't have to do this. In fact, the father had full rights in this society to even beat the son, to say that is not proper behavior. And yet it's interesting that the father splits 
his estate. Now, a couple things to note, specifically in verses 11 and 12, the word in the passage that the young son uses to say, hey, give me the property, is a Greek word that is just kind of this objective word that's used for financial wealth. So it's just kind of a generic term for, hey, just give me money. But it's interesting that when it says that the father divided his estate, it doesn't use that same word. In other words, the father just didn't give the son money. In fact, the word that's used for the the father dividing the estate is the word bios, which is actually where we get this idea of life. So you realize it's not that the father just simply divides his estate and his assets and gives the son, you know, his his little inheritance, but the father just basically gives the son his life. That it's not just his things, it's it's a part of it's, hey, this is who I am. So in this culture, if a father had two sons, the oldest son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the youngest son would get one-third. But you have to realize that they don't live in a liquid society. In, in other words, it's not like the father just had a whole bunch of cash in the bank that he went down to the bank and just said, hey, okay, I need a third of my money and I'll give it to my son. That most of the time, the inheritance or the estate was, was in property or it was in animals or it was in trees and that kind of thing. So think about what the son is actually asking for the father. He goes to his dad and says, dad, I, I really wish you were dead right now. Could I have what belongs to me? Hey, when you're dead, I get this stuff. So could you just give it to me now? And so what the father is having to do is not just, he can't go down to the bank. So he has to go and actually sell what he has to give the son cash, some money. And again, the emphasis here is not that he just gives him money, but that he gives him a part of his life. It's, 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 it's who he is. But it's interesting that when it says in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and journeyed to a distant country and there squandered his possessions. That word for possessions goes back to that generic term for wealth or finances. So you get this double emphasis here of not only the younger son asking for something that he shouldn't be asking for, and not only is it a slap in the face of the father saying, I wish you were dead, but it's almost like the son has purposely distanced himself. And you see that even in the passage because he goes to a distant country. So again, even just the physical, uh, the distance in the physical sense is a showing of a separation. But even the language in the Greek is this overemphasis to say that the younger son just didn't care about the family or the father. And he's like distancing, distancing himself. He's rebelling. He's shaking his fist in the father's face saying, I wish you were dead and I'm going to go and do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I just, I'm going to spit in your face and go live my life. Now, again, you have to see this in light of the fact that this is a honor and shame culture. And in this kind of a culture, this would have been so shameful for a younger son to do this, that it literally would have put great shame upon this family. Now, as the story goes on, and you know this well, he goes to this distant country, spends all of his money. This famine takes place, and it says it's a severe famine, and he doesn't have any resource. He has no money. He has no has nothing to care for himself. So he literally sells himself, likely to a Gentile pig farmer, and he's literally tending to the pigs. Now, again, in this culture, a pig to a Jew is like the abhorrest animal in culture. I mean, this is like the lowest of the low of the low. In fact, the son is not even just touching the pigs and caring for the pigs, but he actually wants to eat the food of the pigs. So if you see this through the lens of a Jewish 
perspective, what you begin to realize is that here's a son who has really distanced himself greatly from the family and the father, but now he's at the lowest of all lows, and here he's caring for the pigs. In fact, he's wanting to eat the food of the pigs. Now, at some point later, he comes to his senses, which is always a good thing to do, and he begins to have this desire saying, wow, even if I was a hired servant in my father's house, that would be far better than how I'm living. And by the way, this idea of a hired servant in the father's house, a hired servant could be dismissed at any time. So he says, even if I was just, you know, day by day, not even sure if I'm going to, you know, continue the next day, that would still be better than this place, the state that I'm in right now. And so he gets up and begins to rehearse his conversation that he's going to have with his dad by saying, dad, I'm so sorry. This is all my fault. I've literally shamed you. I've shamed myself. I've literally exploited all this stuff. Hey, would you, hey, I've sinned against heaven against you. Would you, would you please let me come and be a hired hand in your home? Now, you know how the story progresses and we'll get to that in just one second. But it's interesting when I was in Israel a few weeks ago, we were talking about this story and what was mentioned is as we were talking about community as a whole, about how does Jewish community work and what is this idea of insula, which would be the idea of community? Well, as we were talking about this, we were looking at it from the lens of this honor and shame culture. And what one of our guides mentioned, which I never heard before, which was so amazing to me, was that the story of this prodigal son was actually a common Jewish story in the day of Jesus. In fact, everyone probably knew this story to some degree, except Jesus changed the ending. And how the normal story goes, it's everything that we just walked through. But what's interesting is the son was returning home as he got to the edge and and the, the community saw the son in the distance, the community rose up. And for the sake of the honor of the father, the community ran out and they picked up stones and stoned this prodigal son. And the reason the community did that is because this, this younger son who really shamed the, the family, which means that he shamed the community and is really rejecting and he's distancing himself from this whole group and saying, hey, I have no interest in being a part of you. I want to do my own thing. I wish you were all dead. So therefore I'm leaving. The community says, hey, we can't have that. And so therefore when the son returns, the community rises up and then he kills this younger son for the sake of the honor of the father. So isn't it interesting that when Jesus is telling the story, Again, he's talking about the heart that God has for the unbeliever. And you realize that Paul tells us that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Here we were, we were shaking our fists in God's face. Here we were in rebellion and we have distanced ourselves from the Father. See, we have taken, we have squandered what what was what should have been ours and, and we've just really wasted on prodigal living. We've just done our own thing. We've lived how we wanted to live. We've spat in the Father's face. We've distanced, we've distanced ourselves from the community. And yet here we are, we're returning to the Father and we're hey in the depths of our souls saying, wow, I, I have sinned against heaven against you. Would you please, I, I don't even want to be a part of the family anymore. Just will you let me be a servant in your household? And isn't it interesting what the father in the story that Jesus shares does? It says in verse 20, but while he was yet far away, the father saw him and was moved with compassion and ran and embraced his neck and kissed him. Now it's interesting that the word far away there, that while he was yet far away, is the same word that's used earlier in the same passage for going into a distant country. 
And I'd heard all along uh, from a lot of preachers that all grown up as I was a kid that here was a father. He was staring out his window. He was fogging up the glass with expectation day by day by day. He's just, oh, and just anxiety, just wishing the sun would return. Oh, maybe today will be the day. And I think that's very true in the passage. And you realize that is how God feels about us. That, hey, when we reject and when we rebel and we live in sin, that God is just, man, he is torn up. He is just, man, I, I can't have this. And now, interestingly, he actually goes after us. But in the passage, in, 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 this, uh, in this parable, it's interesting that here's a son. And while he was still at this great distance away, the father looks and, oh, there's my son. So what does the father do? See, the father doesn't wait for the son to come to him. Isn't it amazing that the father runs toward the son? Now, think about this from a Jewish perspective. See, a father or an older man doesn't run. See, it would be shameful to literally, you know, of course, you know, they're wearing those little robe dress kind of things. In order to run, you have to pick that up, you know, pull it beyond your knees so you can actually move your legs. Otherwise, you, can, you can't go that very, you can't go very fast. So that would have been a shameful thing as an older man to do. But think about the heart of the father. See, the heart of the father is so consumed with this compassion and love for the son that he doesn't care if he's shamed. He pulls his little robe up beyond his knees and he runs, does the very shameful thing, to embrace the son. But also think about what is communicated here in light of that community aspect. See, in the original story, the son is returning in the community for the sake of the father and the sake of the community and the honor there goes and kills the son. So it's interesting that in Jesus' parable, the father runs to the son as if not only to embrace the son, because we see that he embraces his neck and kisses him and really brings him back into, brings him back into a restoration. But more than that, in contrast with the normal story of that day, the father is protecting the son from the community. He's saying, look, I recognize that this younger son has shamed me and this community, but look, he is my son and I want to bring him back in a restoration and I want to bring him back. And I love this idea that the son says, dad, look, I mean, I, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And we, would you please just let me? And it's like the father cuts off the son and says, son, I've, I've, hey, I've already forgiven that. And you realize that the father didn't wait for the son to return. You realize that the father with deep compassion, it's like he had already come to a place of forgiveness in the midst of running to the son. So by the time he gets to the son and the son even just opens his mouth, the father's like, yes, yes, I forgive you. And it's not that he even brings him in as a hired hand. He brings him back in as a son. Isn't that an amazing thought? And he protects the son from the community. And he says, hey, look, I am restoring you. And I am willing to bear the shame that you have caused me in this community. Look, I know that you've rebelled. I look, I know that you have wasted your money. But I am so desirous for you that I'm willing to bring you in. I'm willing to call you my son. And it's amazing to me that what the father does by when he says, hey, bring out the best robe and put it upon him and bring out the ring and shoes upon his feet. You realize that. That, that is kingly language, that he's really giving great honor to his son, even though his son didn't deserve anything. And do you realize that is what God has done with us? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he brought us in and he didn't just make us a servant or a hired hand. No, he adopted us in and made us heirs with Christ. 
and you realize that Christ is the firstborn. He's the one that has the responsibility of taking care of the entire family. And we now get to come under his covering, his protection, his safety, and his provision. That that what the father has given the firstborn, that we have taken our little inheritance and we've just squandered it in sin and junk. Do you realize that the father has brought us back in? And our inheritance is, yes, not our own in that sense, but we literally get to have the inheritance, which is the firstborn son. That is so amazing to me, which means that the firstborn son, Jesus Christ, is going to care for me, that he's going to provide for me, that he's going to be all that I need, as 2 Peter 1.3 says, for life. He's everything that I need for life and for godliness. What an amazing, amazing, amazing reality. Now, of course, there's a whole second part of this parable, but we're not going to look at that, at least today. I've just been just dumbfounded by this idea, and I've just gained this whole new perspective on the story of the prodigal son. Of here is a son who has squandered his wealth, and when, when all by all rights, he should have been killed for what he did. The fact that he returned would have been so just aghast to the community that it makes sense why the community would rise up and kill the, the son, because you don't behave that way. You don't shame the father and the community like this. And yet, what has our God done? Because we have done that exact same thing, that this loving father has brought us back in, that he has adopted us as his child, that we get to bear his name and we get to come under the provision of the firstborn. Wow, what an amazing, amazing reality. And as Jesus reminds us, whenever a sinner repents, (laughs) all of heaven and the angels rejoice over the one because the one in God's economy is significant. Well, I hope that was an encouragement and just a breath of fresh air in your soul to remind us of how much our amazing God loves us, that he is staring out the window longing for sinners to repent, but he is willing to bear the shame. He is willing to take the burden. He he has already paid the cost on our behalf. So if I could encourage you today, would you just go and just spend time with Jesus and just thank him for all that he has done? And would you realize that all that you need is found in him? And if you want to take this another step further, I would highly encourage you to read the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15, as well as Ephesians chapter 1, which talks about the amazing blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 102 for episode 102. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.